Finch, this is Comms Day Live. Welcome to the show. Well, this week, this podcast is all about an event that we held in Sydney, the Australasia Satellite Forum. We held it in conjunction with the UK publisher Talk Satellite. It was two days of everything communication satellite. And uh, in particular, we had a very uh, an inspirational closing keynote from Australia's first astronaut, dating back to the Space Shuttle in 1984, Paul Scully Power. We're going to hear a bit from his presentation later in the show. But first up, the executive editor of Comms Day, Rowan Pearce. Welcome, Rowan. Hey, Graham. Now, uh, you covered the two major keynotes, the morning keynotes for the forum. And first up on day one was uh, Arian Space, who, of course, the big European rocket launch company. And their boss came out to our little conference here in Australia to, to address the crowd. What did he have to say? Yeah, so it was quite interesting. So as you mentioned, Stefan Israel, who hasn't made that many appearances in Australia, as far as we're aware. So it was quite a coup for the conference to get him there. Had a lot packed in his speech. Um, a lot of interesting things, some interesting details about the next ger- uh, generation of launches, including the Ariane 6 uh, series, which would take Optus 11 into orbit. But I guess for me, the kind of things that really leapt out from the address were, you know, his message were on the one hand, there's been this massive growth of the space economy. But the, on the other hand, there's this need for sustainability in space, which is actually related to that. Um, and actually, it ties in a bit with the piece that you did about uh, Optus's presentation to the conference where Nick Lee noted that there were um, 30,000 objects the size of a golf ball or larger in orbit and 300 million less than one centimetre. So it's kind of getting crowded up there. And on top of that, Stefan noted that, you know, there'd been this massive growth in satellites. So 2018, 1,800 satellites in orbit. 2021, there are 5,000. By the 2030s, it's going to be around 50,000. And around 42,000 of those are actually going to belong to um, the Stalin constellation. Actually, one interesting thing that um, Simon mentioned to me this morning was that Elon Musk had actually said within 18 months, two-thirds of all satellites in orbit are going to be, um, are going to be Starlink, uh, Starlink satellites. So it's going to get quite crowded. And one of Stefan's messages were you need more regulation to actually support, uh, support space sustainability. You need efforts around things like space traffic management and space situational awareness. Yeah, very interesting. Um, now, on the second day, we heard from Australia's new Space Command. I, I love saying that. Um, uh, uh, what was their message? So some, well, actually, I was there. Some of it was a bit similar, but they, they had a, a lot more to say as well, didn't they? Yeah, it was quite interesting. Yeah, I feel like maybe maybe do we need like some Star Wars theme music or something in the sort of podcast, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, so Space, Space Command, obviously the, the newest uh, branch of the Australian military. And as you mentioned, the day two keynote... Um, Part of it was a video address by the First Defence Space Commander, who's um, Air Vice Marshal Kath Roberts. And there was also an in-person address from Lieutenant Colonel Clifford White. And I guess one one thing that was kind of interesting to me, um, and they both kind of like brought this up, is that they're still working out what it really means to have like space as a kind of warfighting domain. So it's considered, the Australian military considers it the fifth warfighting uh, war domain alongside land, uh, marine, air and cyber. So they're kind of still, uh, you know, trying to establish what exactly that means for the Australian military. But I guess um, Roberts did have a couple of interesting comments around space congestion as well, um, same with Stefan Israel, um, I- including, I guess, like, one of the issues that um, obviously satellites are contending with are the debris from the Russian test last year of an anti-satellite missile. Um, but the other thing that was kind of coming through the, the Space Command uh, presentations, and like you, I love saying Space Command too, um, is that they really see uh, uh, collaborating with the space industry as vital. And I guess um, particularly 
seeing a role for the um, uh, the space sector and the defence primes to really try and build up Australia's space skills pipeline and I guess also support some kind of innovation from the, the SME um, side of things. Well, moving on... Uh the Australasia Satellite Forum, of course, isn't just about Australia. It also covers the Pacific Islands. And, of course, that's that's um, key for the satellite sector because those islands are so reliant upon satellite connectivity. But that is changing. Um, there's been a lot more fibre going into the region. And uh, we held a panel session at the Forum this week to talk about how that impacts on Pacific telcos and, and how they source their connectivity. Um, chairing that panel was none other than our own chief editor, Simon Ducks. Welcome, Simon. Hi there, Graham. So what were the big takeouts from your panel? Well, as uh, you mentioned, uh, the Pacific Island, you can imagine uh, the sheer area and scale that we're talking about. It's one of the largest areas in the world that you actually have to get uh, communication services to. The interesting thing that uh, happened on the panel was that there was a little bit of myth-busting going on. So we had uh, representatives there from uh, Digicel PNG, uh, Vodafone Cook Islands, and uh, Andrew Johnson uh, joined us from Delta Systems as well, who's obviously got really good experience uh, in the region as well. And uh, the key there was there was a little bit of a reality check around um, uh, a lot of the fibre systems that are going in uh, versus uh, the satellite uh, systems that have been there for a while as well. Uh, and also, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the impact that Leo uh, could potentially have, because uh, if you remember last year, we were talking about the capacity that Leo companies may be able to dump cheap bandwidth in the region. So a few of these uh, potential myths were busted a little bit by our panelists, uh, who uh, gave a little bit of a reality check, just uh, pointing out the fact that uh, if you look at what's happened over the last year, um, there's been some issues around the resilience of uh, undersea cables, and some of this boils down to uh, them running on fairly similar routes when they come into the various islands, and some of it boils down to actually uh, these uh, cables are funded by various governments, uh, either in-house or uh, development banks uh, through the region, and because of that, that actually leads uh, them to land and uh, do... Uh, what they would call um, sort of uneconomic behaviours, uh, which is what's happening on the islands, essentially. So they don't get run efficiently. And, of course, what they don't also do is allow for breakout for inter-island and so on. And this is where satellite still plays a really, really crucial role. Uh, because, of course, you know, when you're looking at backhaul links uh, between islands uh, over vast areas uh, and also uh, the whole satellite backhaul, then, you know, you're going to have to be looking at satellite to deliver that. So uh, essentially, uh, they pointed out, uh, talking about uh, Tonga a little bit and the fact that uh, when it went offline, the entire economy stopped and uh, Satellite was able to get uh, Tonga back online, uh, at least uh, for some of the uh, economic and business side of things, uh, in about two and a half days. And one of the things uh, that we went on to talk about was uh, this idea of um, Leos in the region. Now, we know that uh, if you look at your average user terminals, they're $600 US upwards, essentially, and they're already heavily subsidised. So you can argue that in the particular region uh, across the Pacific, 
they're not necessarily going to make a, uh, a big impact when uh, you know, you're looking at GSM handsets in PNG, uh, for example, that Colin Stone said were selling for around $9. Um, so it's almost a different scale in terms of how the technologies are, are working. And uh, the thing with the LEOs, which extends across to a lot of the other satellite services, is that there seemed from the panelists to be a feeling that there was a lack of uh, ground stations across uh, the Pacific Islands because obviously, uh, as we saw with um, Starlink connecting up uh, Tonga, uh, they uh, had to build a temporary uh, ground station in Fiji and uh, get that organised fairly quickly. But if you're going to roll out all of these services, obviously you're going to have to have the gateway structure to support all of them. And, uh, you know, we're just not there yet as as far as you can see. And one of the things the panelists were all very keen to uh, point out was that in the satellite market across the Pacific, you got a lot of diversity because there's obviously a lot of players there. So uh, that makes uh, sense. Uh, we touched a little bit about pricing uh, talking about the fact, uh, uh, Colin Stone pointed out the fact that uh, with the Coral Sea cable, even though it came into New Guinea, there hadn't been much of an impact on pricing uh, for telecom services. So uh, we're seeing a little bit of movement on uh, some of the satellite pricing, and that's uh, basically down uh, to competition as well. And uh, then we moved on to talk a little bit about uh, some of the spectrum issues. Uh, Obviously, as we know in the world, um, with uh, WRC23 coming up, there is um, a lot of look of the IMT 5G spectrums uh, gobbling up certain chunks that the satellite users actually want. And uh, again, there was a little bit of a difference of uh, opinion uh, from uh, the panellists suggesting that that's not going to be such an issue for the Pacific Islands because, of course, they don't have the uh, restraints that like the centre of Tokyo has versus the New Guinea Highlands. Uh, And uh, there was a call out, actually, uh, Phil from uh, Cook Island uh, thanked uh, Pete Gervin for helping them on uh, some of their WRC23 submissions. So it's it's good to see some real cooperation occurring between the satellite operators as well. Okay, fascinating stuff, Simon. Thanks very much. Thank you, Graham. Now, um, as mentioned before in this podcast, we're going to hear from Paul Scully Power. Now, he's, he's best known as Australia's first astronaut. He um, was a payload specialist on a NASA space shuttle mission in 1984. But he, that's just part of what he's about. Um, that, that's the celebrity part of what he's about. He, he's an incredibly accomplished uh, oceanographer, technology expert and business executive. Um, He's considered to be a world expert in remote sensing. Um, And he he also has extensive commercial government and academic experience in Australia, New Zealand, the UK and the US. He's considered to be um, uh, widely recognised for his expertise as well in defence, national security, aviation, uh, aerospace, uh, communications and systems analysis, education and... Overall, the satellite industry. So it was in that capacity that we uh, asked him to give the closing keynote at our Australasia Satellite Forum this week. And he painted, he he took a a step back from the the day-to-day issues and and painted a picture of where we might be in 
five to ten years' time in terms of what's possible from space. It's quite eye-opening. And, and one thing he was at pains to point out was that a lot of the technology advances that he's describing actually already exist. They're not pie in the sky. They're real things happening now in labs or that have been demonstrated. And within five or ten years, these things will become commercial. So let's hear from what he, about what he had to say. In 1984, there were 372 active satellites. Today, as you've heard, there's over 5,000. What a dramatic change in that time. And by the way, over half the active satellites in orbit today belong to SpaceX. Again, what a dramatic change that is. So what of the next five years, only the next five years, I'm going to project because beyond that, it's almost impossible. But over the next five years, there will be over 100,000 satellites in orbit. Believe you me, that's a conservative estimate. As you've heard, probably 42,000 will be SpaceX. The Chinese have already admitted to at least 13,000, but I believe the number is closer to 30,000. I don't have a direct line to Xi Jinping here. So those 100,000 plus satellites within five years in orbit will form what I'm going to call the space internet. And yes, it will be a hundred times more powerful than the current internet, let me explain. One way of thinking about it is, it was only on the 29th of April, 2007, that's 15 years ago, that the first iPhone was available in America. And look how the iPhone has changed the way we work and live. We can think about what I'm talking about as some very, very smart smartphones in orbit. And they are going to change every person, every company on Earth. It'll be the smartphone revolution on steroids. They're going to communicate not only with people, and by the way, they're going to enable two and a half billion extra people to communicate uh, with smartphones. But they're going to be the basis on which we communicate with the so-called Internet of Things, which is going to just blow you away in terms of the amount of data. They're going to carry very high-resolution sensors on these satellites. They're going to, we're already developing uh, nanotechnology, uh, which we can put on the satellites. Um, and as part of the Internet of Things, we're going to be measuring on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, things down here on Earth 
for example, farms, and it's one of the, I'll do a deep dive on that in a little bit. Farms of the future will be totally automated. We will be running farms in Australia and the rest of the world from space because those base assets will communicate with what I call the robots down here on Earth, which is drones and tractors and smart robots, which will in fact do the farm. And I'll speak more about that later. Um, we've heard a bit about latency. Latency, especially for defense, is gonna be absolutely critical. I wanna talk more, more about that. And to put some numbers to it, this space internet that I'm talking about will reduce the current latency from space by a factor of 36. A factor of 36. That is absolutely dramatic in terms of operations. And by the way, the resolution of sensors from that space internet will at least improve by a factor of 36 and closer to 50. And within two years, everyone in this room will be able to pull out their smartphone and talk directly to a satellite within two years. We know how to do that today. So I like to think of it Oh, that's the sort of the breakdown that I've been wandering through. But there's, when you think about it, why it's so conservative is basically every university in the world is now talking about space and they're going to launch CubeSats. If you add that number together, you get well over 100,000. Now these mesh network, once you've got a mesh network like that in space and it really is a mesh network, there's lots of things you can do that you can't do today. For example, we are going to communicate between each one of those nodes with lasers. Well, there's the mesh network. We're going to communicate with lasers. High bandwidth, very accurate. And if you think that's crazy, only a few hours ago, Northrop Grumman demonstrated what you see on that slide, complete with total encryption. So it's not pie in the sky. That was done successfully just a few hours ago. Now, if you stop and think of all the things we're gonna use this space internet for, and how it's going to affect us down here on Earth. There's a niggling problem. Just really stop and think about it with all this internet of things and everything else. Is we need energy to drive that. And what's the biggest political problem we have in Australia today? People are worried about the costs of energy, the cost of electricity. Queensland nearly got blacked out yesterday and they had to do certain unusual things to ensure that didn't happen. 
So the question is, how can we solve the energy problem? And the answer turns out to be blindingly simple. We do it from space. And what I'm talking about is space-based solar power. It is quite feasible. We know how to do it. And the incredible thing that most people in this country don't realise is that the plans for that, engineering plans, costing plans, everything, detailed plans, have already been written by a company in this country. Conceptually, that's how you do it. We know how to do it. But more importantly, more importantly, countries around the world are paying strict attention to it. As you can see, the UK government up the top in the House of Commons a couple of months ago committed to developing it. They did a feasibility study for over a year. What they sort of forgot to mention was they did a feasibility study on the Australian plans for space-based solar power. And just to give you a glimpse, to build one of these plans on orbit that would provide the same amount of energy as in today's one of their nuclear power plants. The cost is roughly equivalent to two nuclear submarines. So I think we can afford it. So my message, I, yeah, I'll let you read all that, but ESA's, ESA's committed to do it. US is committed to do it. Uncle Joe has actually written a presidential directive. He hasn't issued it yet, but I happen to have a copy of it. So that's gonna happen. But I think even more importantly, China just last week committed itself to doing exactly what I'm talking about in 2028. Think about that six years away. China will be able to go, just like they've done the last month, to small countries around the world and say, would you like free energy? And if you would, you need to do this, this and this. We're facing a real revolution in space. So I guess my bottom line is, space is no longer up there. It's really down here. You know, the original Space 1.0 was sending things up there, launching into space. But Space 2.0 is the space industry, commercial and defense, national security. We explored up there 
in space 1.0. We ex exploit down here in space 2.0. Because as I've alluded to, it's going to provide a step function increase in productivity, efficiency, environmental protection across just about every industry you can think of, certainly agriculture, certainly mining, certainly uh, worrying about you know, fresh water, all that sort of thing. And the Australian farmer of the future, as I mentioned, well within five years, We'll get, we'll get up of a morning and around the breakfast table he or she will tap on their smartwatch. Well, first of all, they'll read the, the downlink from overnight. And these smart nano sensors, and I, and I want to go further than that, we have the capability today to do away with electronic chips. We're going to use photonic chips. We're going to use neuromorphic processing. We're going to use processing at the edge in Leo. We're going to use artificial intelligence to control it all. It's, it's a total new world out there. So the far Australian farmer, within five years around the breakfast table, will review what the satellite sensors have told him and her from yesterday, like you, you've got to water only this little section of your farm, you've only got to spray this little section of your farm, you really need to crop here rather than there. A tap on their smartwatch. The drones, the, the uh, tractors will all automatically go out and do the job because it's already been pre-programmed from space. That is the farm in Australia within five years. And people mention uh, things like bushfires, floods. Again, real simple to do from space. You can do the detection in nanoseconds. And if you're real smart, rather than have fire towers around, you'll have automatic drones on those towers which automatically go out and, and help resolve things like bushfires. But I did want to mention, if I can find it, um, defence. Defence obviously is and will become even greater, a bigger user, usage of space. going to be a big user of space because for all the reasons you've sort of been alluded to in the last couple of days, all operations will be joint, cyber will be important, ISR, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, will be essential. The 36 factor uh, improvement in latency 
will make, make the difference from winning and losing. Everything will be coordinated joint communications, again, with artificial intelligence, very smart sensors. Everything that we're gonna use for smart farming and mining and smart mining and those sorts of things. All those capabilities will be used in, spade, in spades by defence. And with the new Defence Space Command in Australia, those folks are already getting their minds around all of that. Because what we have to do in Australia, very quickly, given the state of the play in national security today, is to figure out very quickly what the total architecture is that we need in space, both offensive and defensive, and to put that into operation as soon as possible. And, and I think the new government actually realises that. So I'm sure you agree. Fascinating insights there from Paul Scully Power. That's it for Comms Day Live. We'll see you next time.